This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Collection by Michael Strahan, available exclusively at JCPenney. Collection by Michael Strahan makes it easy to look good and feel your best no matter the occasion. The collection includes suits, separates, sport coats, dress shirts, neckwear, belts, accessories, basics, denim, luggage, and shoes. I got big and tall sizes and boy sizes too. Collection by Michael Strahan is available exclusively at JCPenney. Visit a store near you or go to jcp.com. Collection by Michael Strahan, jcp.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We all know people who have a certain magnetism and charisma. What is it exactly that makes them so compelling? My guest today explores that question in his book, Compelling People, the Hidden Qualities That Make People Influential, and primarily locates the answer in two such hidden qualities, strength and warmth. His name is Matthew Kohut, and today on the show, he explains why it is we find the combination of strength and warmth so attractive in others, and how we can cultivate those traits ourselves, including the way we dress, carry ourselves, and talk. Matt then gives advice on how to display strength and warmth in different situations we might find ourselves in, from acing a job interview to managing a crisis at work. We end our conversation with that most perennial question of body language, what do you do with your hands when you speak? As the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash compelling people. Matthew Kohut, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are the co-author of a book called Compelling People, The Hidden Qualities That Make Us Influential. So what got you started researching what makes compelling people compelling? Well, you know, my co-author, John Neffinger, and I, and a third partner, Seth Pendleton, we came to this through politics, actually. All of us were speechwriters. We were working with different folks and full disclosure, we're Democrats. And we were watching people lose in the early 2000s here. And we were trying to figure out how do we make messengers more effective in that setting. And it led us really on a journey to try and figure out how people got the thing that we call the it factor, this idea of charisma or whatever it is you see when you sense that somebody is a very magnetic presence. And around the time we're trying to figure this out and doing some speech writing for some folks, we also started working with some first clients. And it led us to identify two fundamental problems that clients would have. Some of them were really towers of strength in the sense that they were incredibly capable, but they were cold. And that was one set of problems. And then on the other side, we'd see these people who were the nicest people in the world, but they were always tripping over themselves and apologizing for themselves. And we saw this again and again in this early client work. We were sometimes doing things for free with people and getting friends who were just having problems communicating. And we noticed these two things happening. And we were also research geeks, and we were talking to different behavioral economists and reading social psych. And we looked in the research, and we found an answer that essentially supported our hypothesis, that there was really something there about these two fundamental qualities that we were identifying as problem areas for a lot of people. So yeah, you make the case that strength and warmth are these two things that people look to when they're making judgments at people. Because oftentimes we think, oh, when you make a judgment at a person, there's like one thing you're looking at. But you say we're making two separate judgments on whether they're strong and warm. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, in some way you can think about it almost, I'm going to go sort of pseudo evolutionary biology here. You see somebody coming over the savanna, you know, far off on the hill, and you look at that person, you think, is that person a threat? Is this person maybe an ally? 
And we make these kinds of judgments all the time. We look at people's capabilities and their intentions and we say, what can this person do? And are they my kind of person? And so, you know, it's interesting that we, we chose the word strength and warmth very deliberately. And yet in the years that have followed, sometimes I find that talking about capability and connection is also just as accurate a way to describe these qualities because ultimately it's showing people what can you do and do you care about the same things I do? Are we on the same page in some way? Yeah, I think it's great that, I mean, you came from this in the political perspective because like politicians from like the very beginning have been balancing these two factors. It's like why politicians, they want to appear strong, but it's like why they kiss babies, right? When they're on the campaign trail, exactly. they want to appear warm <laughs> or it's like that, like you want to be the guy that you can have a beer with, right? You're relatable. Right. Sure. Right. And that relatability factor is why people eat you know, fried dough at county fairs and do all those even kind though of they, things you were mentioning. Even though they hate it and you can tell they're exactly. just not want to be there. All right. So let's talk about these two attributes. What do you mean by strength and why do we respond positively to strong people? Well, you know, strength, the easiest way to think about it. And again, if the word capability works better for you, use that, but think about it as a combination of your skill plus your will. The academic words that we tend to connect to make this concept are competence and assertiveness. And not to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but the academics who have looked at these two qualities, they really focus on competence and warmth. John and I, in our practice, we're really seeing something more than that. Competence alone doesn't really explain what we respond to in people. There is a facet of our will that's in here, the assertiveness side of it. In other words, you can probably think of people who are really competent in something, but they don't speak up for themselves. They don't put themselves out there. So we kind of combine these combination, combine these qualities and hit on this idea of strength or capability as the thing that really matters. And at a fundamental level, strength says you can get things done. It also says you can protect yourself and you can protect others. And that's part of what's really attractive about strength is when we see somebody who's either very capable at something and we admire their capability or that ability to protect, that's a really that's a very positive thing. Now there's a downside to strength too, which is that strength can be used to get things done that you don't want done. <laughs> you know, when you see someone else using their strength in a way that is not to your liking, they don't share your intentions. Then you look at that strength and say, oh my gosh, yikes. And there, it can elicit a fear response when it's all strength, no warmth. And you also have the book that some people are skeptical of strength. They're like, I don't know about that. Absolutely. So when you think about the, I'll, I'll kind of go traditional here. When you think about, let's cast our minds back 50 years. It's the anniversary of Woodstock here. Think about hippies looking at the establishment back in the 1960s. And, you know, this is on the backdrop of the Vietnam War and all those kinds of social factors. There was a very skeptical view of what you might think of as traditional strength at that time. And you can argue rightly so. And it's a very interesting dynamic. There are people who almost as a disposition are skeptics about what you might think of as traditional strength displays. And I don't mean to say that they're all hippies. There are plenty of people who share that disposition of all sorts of stripes politically. But it's an interesting thing that you see some people when they see a person posturing in a way that is sort of traditionally perceived as strength, given whatever culture you're in, they'll kind of give it the hairy eyeball and say, what are you up to? <laughs> they won't necessarily believe it's anything more than that kind of a posture, or they might even just reject the posture on its face. 
So what goes on in our body when we display strength? Yeah, well, I mean, the key hormone where strength is concerned is testosterone, and that's not a secret. And it's also about... You know, one of the things that people tend to associate strength with on the physical side is taking up space. And so when you think about how you feel when you're triumphant, when you're taking up a lot of space, while you're doing those kinds of things, your hormones are shifting too. And people who have just been in some sort of a more triumphant kind of a setting feel more confident and their hormonal balance is shifting as they're doing these things too. We're, we're never at rest hormonally. We're always doing something. And for sure, there are different effects that kick in depending on what behaviors we've just had, whether we've just been victorious or felt like we did something really well, or if on the other other hand, we've just experienced some sort of a setback or are feeling downcast or dejected. All right. So strength is uh, confidence and will. What does warmth look like? Warmth is very context-based. I think the easiest way to think about warmth is showing people that you share their concerns, their interests, maybe even their emotions, depending on what's in play. And that can include values as well. And like I said before, a lot of times I talk about a sense of connection because warmth is, it can both be biological in the sense of the way we feel around the people we're closest to. Think about parents and their children. There's that warmth that is really something that begins with skin to skin contact between mothers and infants. And then there's also this sense we have with people we know in a more broadly social way of just having common things in common with them. And we feel that they share our perspective in some way, or they see the world through a common lens with us, even if we don't agree with them about everything. And for most people, most of the time, kind of walking through life, I find that's a more user-friendly definition of this. It's that sense of connection where you see the world through a common lens. You feel like this is my kind of person. Well, the downside with warmth, so the so the downside with strength is that it could be looked at with suspicion or it can be, you know, you're using it at the wrong time. There's downsides to too much warmth, right? Right. So the extreme of warmth is the nice guys finish last. This is kind of Charlie Brown with Lucy pulling the football away from him, if I can use a an old cartoon metaphor here. It's essentially that you can come across as the lovable loser or at the extreme, somebody who elicits a pity response. If you think about somebody who's super, super nice, but they just kind of keep tripping over their own shoelaces, at some point you say, oh, that's too bad about him. And that's what that's sort of all warmth, no strength at its extreme. And what's going on with our biology when we you know, are displaying warmth? Well, you know, the primary hormone that's in play with warmth is something called oxytocin. And it's this feeling of togetherness with other people. Some people call it the empathy hormone. And it's not just about that. I want to be clear that oxytocin is something that we feel when we're with people who we're very connected to. Oxytocin is a complex hormone. It's also the thing that makes us sort of strike out at people who are outside of our tribe, so to speak. So I want to be be clear that it's not just all warm and fuzzy, but it is absolutely what we're feeling when we get the warm and fuzzy with other people. All right. So warmth is our ability to connect with others. Are we able to be both strong and warm at the same time? So display competence and will and connection at the same time? It's really hard. Let's put it that way. John and I sort of hit on the idea that it's kind of like multitasking in the sense that you're never truly doing two things at once. You're shuttling back and forth between them. And the same is true with people who are 
doing strength and warmth in the same appearance, if you will. So when you're with somebody and you sense their capability and then you sense their sense of connectedness with you or vice versa, that's the better way to think about it is different situations, even within the same meeting with somebody will in some way offer you a chance to show them your capability and or your sense of connection to them. And it's much more likely that you're going to have a chance to show both one after the other or back and forth than that anything would happen where you would just be able to kind of nail it, so to speak. There just aren't, it's, it's, first off, it's very hard because there's a balancing act between these things. They are in tension with each other. And realistically, the situations that come up just ask, typically ask you to show one more than the other in any given moment. Well, you, you call it like there's like a hydraulic factor going on between the two. Like one goes Absolutely, up, the other yeah. goes down. Right. That's exactly right. The more strong you seem, the less warm you seem and vice versa. And so that's why when you're, if you're cognizant of these things and you know your own strength, you know, your own tendencies, then it can be helpful to keep an eye on, hey, have I overexerted here on the strength side? I have to remind people, look, I'm on your side or vice versa. And it's not that you're doing this in some high self-monitoring way so much as you're just kind of being emotionally intelligent with people and making sure they don't lose sight of these things where where you're concerned. So you mentioned earlier that there's sort of a, there's, you kind of alluded to it. There's like a spectrum of strength plus warmth combinations, right? If you're just super nice, all warm, no strength, that elicits that, you know, that pity response from people. I mean, what are some other combinations on that sort of, I guess it's a matrix that you've developed? Yeah. So this two by two, which came out of some of the academic research, uh, was some, it's something that's, it's kind of fun to play with. So if you think about yourself and your combination of strength and warmth as something you can plot on a two by two graph, then here's one way to think about the thought experiment. And then I'll kind of get to your question about the combinations here. So if you ask 10 of your friends, Hey, you know, here are these two qualities, strength and warmth. How would you put a dot for me on this two by two here? And then you average those dots. That kind of gives you a pretty good idea of where you stand. You know, none of us are great at seeing ourselves as others do, but if you had 10 of the people who knew you best, put a dot on that thing and you average those dots, that would kind of give you an idea of pretty much how you, other people are seeing your combination of showing them that sense of capability and connection or strength and warmth. Now, as far as archetypes that fall between these things, it kind of gets granular at this point. It's almost like thinking about Jungian archetypes or something. You know, one of the things that I found talking about this with people since the book came out is that there's a category of people who oftentimes are subject matter experts who while they're doing strength more than warmth, the strength they're doing is really about competence. And it's not this kind of domineering assertive strength. They're, they're doing a lot of subject matter expertise. These are typically really, really smart people who are really invested in what they do. And they sometimes have warmth challenges and they, but they are fantastic at the competence side of strength. Now, another side of it is the person who's the, the bully, essentially, who's domineering. They may not know much, but they're great at just pushing people around and they can lack the warmth. You know, they, those are some of the gradations on the strength side. On the warmth side, where you have some degree of capability, but you have people who are helpers, for instance, they're their instinct is to do for others and they're the person who's maybe the go-between with people, the meet the 
person who is always mediating or facilitating interactions among people. That's something you can see with someone who is more warm than strong, but they are also, you know, they're not deficient on the strength side. And, you know, you have people who play roles that require a little bit more of one than the other. Yeah, you know, it's hard to generalize about people in different combinations too much here. But when you think about people doing things like teaching or doing things like parenting, both of these qualities are required in these, in these roles. And it's worth thinking about how do you, how are you navigating these things? So rather than thinking about archetypes that you see in the four quadrants, it's almost more interesting to think about the roles you're playing and how they might require some of each. Yeah. And I liked, you know, the, the, you had this matrix and you kind of, you talked about different responses you give to people because that was useful for me. So you talked about someone who's low on warmth and low on competence or low on strength. Like those type of people, they're just really annoying. Right. So you have like contempt. <laughs> we tend not to. Well, you, I mean, well, yeah, you use you the word contempt. Him, right. right. You use contempt, but like, you know, those people are just like, ah, geez, like, like he's, he's not useful for anything. And he just, he just, he aggravates you. Like you, everyone's had that person in their, their group. So yeah, that's low warmth, low strength that you have contempt or just, you're just annoyed by them. High warmth, low strength. You've, you know, that pity response, high strength, low warmth. It could be envy or fear. And then like the sweet spot is high strength, high warmth, and that's sort of admiration. Like that person has prestige. That's right. And, you know, the way I like to think about that is you can almost draw some concentric circles out from where the two lines cross. And, you know, you can sneak into the quadrant of high strength, high warmth, or, you know, the strength plus warmth quadrant. And this could be lots of people, you know, you might say, Hey, this person really gets things done and I admire her. And that might be somebody who's in there for you. And then you can think of somebody you've worked for who was the best boss you ever had and say, wow, that's a person who's really got it going on here. I admire that person. And then you can go for the history books (laughs) and go for those people who you say, wow, great leader who used all that capability on behalf of others. So it's not just people who have buildings in the town square who make it into that upper quadrant there you you know think about team captains for instance if you ever played sports that person ideally is the person who was both great at their position and also they had the ability to inspire lift up really rally people together and that's the warmth side in that setting so that's an interesting you know i find that there's there's room in each of these quadrants it doesn't mean you're just kind of automatically at the tippity top of each of them right so i imagine whether you display strength or warmth is very context dependent so like some situations call for strength and others warmth how do you figure out that you know what when you need to display strength and when you need to display warmth you know, it's you're you're spot on. That it is totally context dependent, and all of us are different in different settings too. So think about your work self and your family self or your social self, and you probably come across differently in different settings. You know, you think about some jobs that are really competence driven in the sense that you're there and it's all business all the time. I don't know, air traffic controllers or something, you know, where you really have to just be super hyper-focused and the competence is the thing that you are there for, then it's not so much about being, you know, I'm not, I don't want to generalize about any given job. I don't mean to say air traffic controllers aren't warm people by any means, but <laughs> I just, you know, certain set- settings will obviously require you to focus on one over the other. 
you know, get, go the other way. Therapists, therapists are, have to be great listeners. They have to start with that sense of drawing people out and being able to connect with them. So certain settings tell you what they're looking for. Beyond that, it really becomes a question of emotional intelligence and asking yourself, what do I need this person to understand from me? Do they need to understand that I can get this thing done? Or do they need to understand that I see the world through their lens? And I think you can ask these questions in a way that is not trying to manipulate people. It's really from a question of shared understanding. To me, that's what the real nugget of the book is, is that it's not about posturing. It's not about putting on something. It's about really asking yourself, how can I help connect more deeply with this person? Do they need to know I can get this done or do they need to know that I understand what matters to them? Yeah. So you you talk about Machiavelli in the book. He said in the print, it's better to be feared than loved. You're saying, well... Maybe sometimes, rarely, you know, but most of the time you should probably look for being loved and having that respect. Not Maybe not necessarily feared, but respected. Right. Well, okay. So with the Machiavelli thing, since we're going there, <laughs> if you read on, no one ever reads beyond that sentence. He says, it would be best to be both, but it's very difficult in one person. And so we're, we're going for the Michael Scott of the office answer, which is easy, both. <laughs> and we're saying, look, there are opportunities for most of us in everyday life. We're not princes vying at the highest end of politics for, you know, skullduggery. And we're not trying for, for <laughs> the brass ring that Machiavelli was addressing in his book, The Prince. But for most of us day to day, I think that we have opportunities to show people both that we are capable and that we care about the same things they do. So let's talk about some of the things you dig into and how we can display strength or warmth. And you start off talking about nonverbal cues that uh, we give off. And the first one is our appearance. Sure. So how does our appearance help determine whether we're perceived as strong or warm? And our appearance, I mean, this could be, I mean, we can go clothing, we can go, you know, your body size, your body shape, whatever. Sure. Well, think about that for a second. One way to do this test for yourself, by the way, is if you just are watching something on a screen, turn the mute button on so there's no sound and just watch people. So you can do this watching TV or you can do it if if you, a great way to do this, if you actually are working on this for yourself is get some video of yourself out in the wild. You know, if you're in a meeting or something, or you give a presentation or a speech or something, get some video of it and get a look at yourself with the sound off and ask yourself, what are you seeing? And we see strength typically first through posture. And you could be wearing a t-shirt or you could be wearing a suit and you'll still see the strength in the way that someone expresses themselves through good posture. This is the the freebie for me, for everyone is just good posture. I mean, this is the low hanging fruit and you would be shocked how many times Don and Seth and I are still telling people, Hey, stand up or sit up <laughs> because it's one of those things that we you know, oftentimes we're just not aware of this in our day-to-day life, but that is the nonverbal number one clue that we are in some way taking up our full height and our full width. Now, you mentioned appearance and dress and you know if we we can dig into that a little bit too if you want. It's a, it's an interesting thing. I'm not a fashion person, but I have some just some thoughts about it. I'm curious if you had any specific questions about that or just wanted to go into more generally. Yeah, let's go like what what type of clothing makes people appear competent and strong and is there clothing types that make people feel or get perceived as warm? Well, I mean, there's some, you know, honestly, some of the research on this looks a little funny to me, just as somebody who's read a lot of research, but dark 
colors. You know, there's a reason people wear black in more solemn occasions, more somber things. When you think about the clothes that people in finance wear, they wear blacks, blues, and grays. And those things now in our culture, we're kind of conditioned to think of those as the more sober and serious colors. And so if you're trying to affect a more professionally competent demeanor, those those kind of choices can do that for you. Now, we're in a shifting time too, and I spend a lot of times with tech firms. And if you wear uh, you know, God forbid you wear a suit, <laughs> you'll be laughed out of the office. Uh, but, you know, we have, you know, entire workforces where people are wearing the equivalent of jeans and t-shirts to work. And so then you're making these choices and you're making them in ways that are through different gradations than you saw even 10 or 15 years ago in workplaces. And so you have interesting choices around this stuff that, you know, I think it's a shifting landscape and I don't have as hard and firm recommendations as I have for somebody who's thinking about how they're going to present themselves to a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I think it's, like I said, it's uh, the, it's a moving target right now. The interesting question to me about it is when something's almost like uniform and you're trying to fit in a little bit, that speaks to warmth more than it does to strength. And the question is, how do you also make sure that you're showing people that you're, that you came to play? If you think of that as more of the capability side. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month, and most people aren't aware of that. In fact, most people aren't aware they need life insurance at all, and that's why 40% of Americans don't have it. But getting life insurance doesn't need to be difficult or expensive. Right now, prices are the lowest they've been in 20 years, and Policy Genius has made it easier than ever to get covered. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. This isn't just for life Life insurance, Policy Genius can help you find the right home, auto, and disability insurance too. I have insurance. I wish I would have had Policy Genius when I was shopping for my various insurance, my disability insurance, my uh, life insurance. It would have been made a lot easier. I love the fact that they handle all the paperwork and the red tape. That was the part that was the most tedious and it would have been great to have that with Policy Genius. If you need life insurance, but you haven't gotten around to it, National Life Insurance Awareness Month is a good time as any to get started. Go to policygenius.com, get quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Don't do that if you're driving. That would be bad. That's policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare and buy life insurance, policygenius.com. Also by Saks Underwear. So if you're like a lot of guys, you've probably been wearing the same underwear brand you wore since you were a teenager, but a lot has changed in the world of underwear since then. And Saks Underwear has been leading the charge in underwear innovation. It starts off with their patented ballpark pouch. It's a game changer. It's these internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place. No more chafing, no more sticking. Comes in really handy when it's hot and humid. You know, you're working out in your garage. It's awesome. They use fabric that's super soft, moisture wicking, and it repels BO. So you're going to stay fresh, cool, and clean. My favorite underwear is the Saks Kinetic Boxer Brief. Got the mesh panel. It's awesome. And I just like the uh, the tightness around the legs. It's sort of like a compression short almost. It's the Saks Kinetic Brief. If you want to try this out, I got a great offer for you. It's $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. But to get this great offer... You need to use my promo code AOM at checkout. So go to saxunderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com. Use promo code AOM at checkout. You'll get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Go do today, saxunderwear.com, promo code AOM. And now back to the show. Well, in speaking of your world of politics, you see this sort of how people change their clothes to do, whether they're displaying strength or warmth. So, you know, at the debate, everyone, the men are wearing suits, power ties, right. whatever. Except for Andrew Yang, he, he decided to go... Right. No tie. 
um, which caused them uproar. But then when they go to the county fairs, you know, they got no coat on, they've got their, uh, the top button unbuttoned, they got their sleeves rolled up. So, hey, I, I'm relatable. Right. Um, so there's an example of that being played out. Absolutely. You know, Mayor Pete's an interesting example. It's, he's gotten some attention for the fact that he's essentially wearing a uniform. He's wearing the white shirt, the blue tie every day. And it's his brand now. He's he's made that his brand as much as Steve Jobs made the black mock turtleneck his brand. And it's interesting because if you're trying to stand out in a group of 20 people, then doing something consistently like that helps in that respect. And in his case, it's also a competence-driven brand. He's wearing the white shirt and the tie that you could have seen any time in the last 50 years, essentially. And as a younger guy, as a guy who's not just massive physically. He's not, you know, 6'2", 225 pounds or something. He's asserting competence with that uniform. So not only do our clothes can display warmth or strength, and again, as you said, it's context dependent. You're going to have to be very kind of attuned to what's going on in the group. But just even like the appearance that we were born with, right? Like our head shape, our face shape, Mm -hmm. body shape, skin color, like that can influence whether we're perceived as competent or warm. Absolutely. Yeah. All the stuff we're born with, you know, it's funny because in some way, these things, it's frustrating to talk about them on the one hand, because you sort of have the hand you're dealt and there's very little you can do about it. And then what we try to focus on in the book is the things you can turn the dials on, but you're absolutely spot on that these are the things that we show up with. And people do read signals into everything from height, weight, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, all those things do send strong or warm signals and they quickly, rapidly descend into stereotype behavior too, or stereotype judgments rather, not the behaviors, stereotype judgments of the people we're perceiving. And look, all of us stereotype people when we're looking at them at first glance. And you know, if you think you're not doing it, you're probably fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself because there's just been reams of research done on this. And it's it's a challenging thing. And it raises all kinds of questions about how our brains work, but it's a, it's a sorting mechanism essentially for us. And, you know, right, rightly or wrongly, uh, it's something that does, like you said, send these strength or warmth signals. Well, thinking of one for men that, you know, a common trait that you're just born with, you either have it or you don't is height. I mean, the studies show that men who are taller are perceived as more competent and powerful than shorter men are not. So if you're a short guy, you might hear that. It's like, well, I'm hosed. Not necessarily so. You, you, highlight, you know, research and studies that so that show that, you know, even a guy who's not, you know, six five or six four, above six foot even, uh, they there's things they can turn, dials they can can turn where they can still be perceived as competent and strong by people. So posture is the thing I mentioned earlier. And look, I'm five nine. So for me, I'm, I'm sure, do I wish I were three inches taller? You bet. But I'm not. So I'm the guy who, and I'm relatively slender too. So for me, I'm standing up straight and taking up my full height with my shoulders is part of what I just need to do to make sure I don't get lost in the shuffle. It doesn't mean I walk around like a peacock with my chest down. <laughs> just means I want to be cognizant of that as somebody who's a little smaller of stature than probably two thirds of the guys I bump into in a professional setting. So there are things you can do around that. You also have choices around 
the around appearance too. And again, some people who want to make sure they don't get lost in the shuffle might, might, might make fashion choices to help with that as well. So there is a tall premium. You mentioned it for sure. You know, the funny thing about tall folks is a lot of times tall guys, because the world's not built for them, they will slouch and sometimes they will throw away their natural advantage. The thing they were born with that all the rest of us say, wow, I wish I had a couple extra inches. Some of them will, will in some way undo that by slouching and Partly it's because doorways are too low for them, but partly it's because they don't want to hover over people and they don't want to make people uncomfortable. And, you know, when people are going into public facing settings, I always say, hey, own your height <laughs> because that's, you've, you've got it, flaunt it. So another nonverbal cue you talk about that can display both strength and warmth, depending on how you use it, is a smile, which is interesting because you think smile would just be warmth. That's how you show like, hey, I like you. I'm okay. You can approach me. So let's talk about how can a smile display strength as well? Right. Well, you know, we talk about this thing we call the steely smile. And the steely smile is that thing that you see that's, first off, it comes paired with the good strength cues like posture. So it's, you're standing up full height, full width, and your head is straight. And this is important because one of the things that we don't typically think about is head angle also sends signals. If you've ever played with a baby or a puppy and you've done this thing where you cock your head back and forth, you can entertain babies for hours doing this by putting your head off angle and you smile at them and they smile at you and you know, puppies will go rant, rant with you too. And that's warm when you have your head cocked off to the side. And that's a great thing to be able to do when you're trying to connect with somebody. But when you think about this stronger smile, it's head straight up and down. You know, it's like a plumb line running straight down the center of you. And then the smile is not that it's your eyebrows or head. It's not Hey guys, great to see you. It's, hey, how you doing? And it's a smile on the bottom, but your gaze is relatively even at the top. It's not the eyebrows up at half, you know, the flag at half mass, so to speak. Now that's not to say that that's not a good smile in other settings, but it's the nice guy smile. <laughs> and the nice guy smile says, hey, I'm not a threat. The stronger smile we're talking about here where your posture is solid and your gaze is relatively level, it's still a smile. Your eyes are still crinkled at the corners, but you're not, you're not as eager as the eyebrows up smile, if you will. Another aspect of you know something in our face that displays strength or warmth are are our eyes. What role does eye contact play in conveying strength or warmth? You know, eye contact is so interesting, and I just want to be really clear at the outset: eye contact is the most culturally specific cue that is hard to talk to generalize about. So eye contact in American settings, and I even generalize, I hate to generalize about it in American settings because we're a huge country of a diverse population, but the norms you see, let's say in American professional settings are that a lot of eye contact is expected, especially if you're listening to someone, you're expected to be looking them in the eye. And the fact that we're comfortable with eye contact with somebody says we're confident, and it's also a way we connect with people. So eye contact is really about strength and warmth. You know, one of the things we mentioned in the book is that two words that speak to this have a shared root. Think about intimacy and intimidation. Two boxers at the at the weigh-in, they're staring each other down. That's the intimidation factor. It's all eye contact and whoever blinks first loses. And then intimacy, obviously in love, we're making eye contact with people. And so it's, 
interesting how eye contact is really required of us for both. And if we're uncomfortable with eye contact or we're avoidant with it, then it can raise questions about trustworthiness or our comfort with something or our confidence. It can raise a whole host of questions depending on what the context is. Yeah. And yeah, even said in, in America, it can be very context dependent, even like in the situation. So in some cases, someone not giving eye contact to somebody would be a, like a strength display, right? It's like, you're just, you're not even worth looking at. I'm going to look away from you, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and that's so funny because in another setting, not looking someone in the eye could be you're avoiding them because you're scared of them. So right. you're, you're spot on. It's a hundred percent context driven. Or you can, you, you can like stare someone down. And that's like a display, mm-hmm. right? A strength, a display of strength. Right. And then sometimes, yeah, you look someone in the eye because like you're supposed to show respect. So it's like a subservient right. thing. So yeah, it's all context dependent. So you got to have that, I guess, they develop that emotional intelligence to figure out what's the best thing to do in whatever situation. That's right. You know, one last thing I'd say about this is if somebody's not giving you the eye contact you're expecting from them, this is especially true in a work setting, ask yourself, could there be a cultural thing in play here? Or could it be that this person's uncomfortable in some way? And I would just suggest that people be generous about that a little bit. You know, a lot of the stuff we're talking about around body language and nonverbal communication, it can almost become this thing of a checklist in people's minds. Oh, they're not looking at me. Therefore, it means X. And I would suggest being a little more generous, especially around eye contact, because you just don't know how people were raised. And there are so many different expectations culturally, even among people who were raised in different parts of the country that I I really hesitate to generalize too much about it. And I encourage people to try to understand that people may have a different norm or expectation depending on where they're from and what was normal where they grew up. Yeah, I think it's a good point about not obsessing too much about this stuff and like making it a checklist thing because what ends up happening is you're you're going through your head, it's going to make whatever encounter you have like super awkward, right? Or it could make it awkward because you're just thinking, okay, am I being strong? Am I being warm? <laughs> so like you're you're probably like not looking strong because you're looking like, you know, going through the thing through your head and you're also not looking warm because you're being incredibly awkward because you're trying to figure out all of my boxes checked. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Bruce Springsteen said something a year or two ago that completely caught my ear about this. He said, the weirdest and worst place you can be when you go on stage is if you suddenly realize, hey, I'm on stage now. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're not there. You're just thinking about the fact that you're there. And the same is true around all this. And here's where this gets tricky is, so how do you operationalize the insights in the book around posture or gesture, eye contact or anything like that? And it's really a process of making this stuff second nature. And so there's a learning curve. And at some point during that learning curve, it does feel self-conscious. And the idea is to get this beyond self-conscious to the point where it becomes unconscious because our nonverbal behavior is largely utterly unconscious to us. We're really not aware of what we're doing. And if you're thinking, where are my hands or <laughs> something like that, then you're <laughs> distracting from making a really good connection with somebody. And so going from that conscious incompetence to the unconscious competence, as they call it, that that continuum, it, it does take a little bit of practice and it does take, there is a process where this stuff leaves your conscious mind and you want to get there as soon as you can. And that's why one of the things we do when we're working with speakers is getting them practicing, 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 watching themselves on tape and then forgetting about it so that these things become second nature and you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I've got my head off axis again or whatever. So we've talked about nonverbal cues. What are, how can our words display strength or warmth? Well, let's start on the strength side. A lot of strength is about being very clear, being very concise, 
and knowing what you're talking about. Think about it as expert, clear, concise, and expert. And people who tend to talk in bullet points, that's what that's about. You know, an extreme of this might be if you think about military communication, where it's very critical that you communicate the bare facts really quickly and no one is unclear about it, or think about communication in operating rooms where people have to be very specific about what they say, that's really strength-based communication in a lot of ways. And there are lots of different kinds of settings where you can think about that, where the, the words are very carefully choreographed and mapped. And anything that's extraneous is out because it's not helping with the competence. What's a thing that I find is much more interesting in some way is that the warmth side is where there's often a lot of a lot of low-hanging fruit and when you think about what warmth in words means it essentially means you're connecting with people you're showing them you care about the things they care about and that i find people don't they tend to not necessarily have the vocabulary for that or think about ways that you can demonstrate that i mean so what does that look like for the warmth side well you know, we talk about this idea of showing people that you're, that you understand their concerns, their interests and their emotions. And the way you do that, there are a couple of different ways. One of the easiest ways, the shortcut to do this essentially is to tell them a story that shows them rather than trying to tell them rather than saying, Oh yeah, I get where you're coming from. You use an anecdote or some sort of a story that essentially demonstrates exactly that because we're all wired to take in story. We love stories just as human animals. And if you can use story language to show people that you have felt the same way they felt, you've experienced something that's similar to what they've experienced, all of a sudden they feel that sense of connection. You didn't have to do anything to make that point. There are a couple other things too. So one is using the same language they use. I know that sounds really obvious. I don't mean you're speaking English, they're speaking English. I mean, using the same kind of vocabulary they use. Sometimes people who have specialized lingo, for instance, speak that specialized lingo around people who don't speak it. And then the the people they're meeting are lost and they don't know what the heck they're talking about. So that creates a barrier to that warmth, that sense of connection. And being actually a great listener and asker of questions. I don't mean an interrogator, but somebody who really takes an interest in other people, that's where warmth starts for me is by saying to somebody, Hey, it's great to meet you. And then getting into what's interesting to them and just being the person who's able to ask them a simple question and unlock things and say, huh, that sounds really interesting. Tell me more about that. If you are good at that, you're good at warmth. Now, the last thing along this line is validating people's concerns, their interests, especially their emotions. You're dealing with somebody and they say, you know, Matt, I'm really frustrated that you did blankety, blankety, blank. If you can validate that frustration, that goes a long way toward demonstrating this warmth. And especially around emotions, everybody's emotions are true on their face. You may not agree with somebody around the substance of something, but you can't argue with people's emotions. And if you can validate their emotions and they say, look, I'm frustrated and say, look, I, I hear you. And um, I'm, I'm sorry that this is frustrating. I, I, I know what you mean. If you can do that from a place of legitimate agreement or some sort of affirmation where not, it's not window dressing, you have to feel it. That's the trick here. It has to be genuine. But if you can validate like that, that's warmth with words. So yeah, you gave a great example of like showing 
that you understand instead of telling you understand. You gave the example of Robert Kennedy. When he was giving a speech, uh, he was at in, in Indianapolis. It was a, uh, in front of a lot of, I guess the audience is African-American. And he got the news that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And he had to be the one to break the news. And he did it in a way where it, sh- like, he showed people that he understood, like, the anger and pain they felt. Right. That's right. That this is a, a really great historical example, where I mean, you think about the anger in that community and the sense of outrage that Martin Luther King has been assassinated. You know, you're in an African American community. You are a white man standing there to deliver this news, and you know that this is could provoke any kind of reaction. It could provoke violence. It could provoke any kind of thing from an audience that's going to feel so devastated by this. And he talked about the sense that he had experienced loss too. He had lost a brother too. And everyone in that audience knew what he meant because they knew about his own brother being assassinated. And he didn't in any way there was nothing condescending in the way he did this. He just was pitch perfect in the way that he, he expressed uh, that sense of anguish about what people were feeling and was able to connect himself to it in a way that was genuine because of his own shared past that people were already familiar with. It's it, it, we call this move getting in the circle with the audience you're with. And if you can do that, if you can show people who are already in one place that you have felt the same way, or you do feel the same way, or you have some experience that legitimately connects to the way they are feeling or the thing they're experiencing. That's, that's it. That's really what warmth comes down to. So let's talk about this display of strength and warmth in different uh, situations that all of us will encounter. One example you gave was a job interview. Mm-hmm. And so that's one, like you have to show both because the goal is to want to show you're competent, but also too, you're trying to show, hey, I would be, you would really want to work with me. I'd get along with you. So how do you do both in that same, in that one, you know, maybe 20 minute interview? You know, you're spot on that you are going to be showing both in these settings. Here's my th- thought about that is the resume got you in the door on your competence. The resume doesn't typically do warmth. It's a strength display. And then the questions as they come are asking you to to do a little bit of both. To me, the tell me about yourself question, which is often the first one that comes in, is asking you to do the essentially the quick version of so here's here's who I am as a person and here's what I've here's what kind of person I am here's what kind of professional I am and you're doing a little bit of the competence by being relatively succinct about it and knowing your story that you can give somebody in that fairly quick bite there i think part of what you're trying to remind people like you said is that you're going to be a good team player. You're going to be somebody or people are going to want to come to work with so that as you're thinking about showing people examples of what you've accomplished in the past, it's not about you. It's not the me show. It's the, it's the me succeeding with others, helping others succeed, being the person who is able to lead or to be the driver of that collaboration. Because honestly, none of us get anything done alone at work. It all happens in a team setting and reminding people that you know how to work effectively with others, to lead others effectively, whatever, however you want to characterize that. That's what a lot of the warmth is going to come across as, as far as the content of what you say. And the way you say it, of course, is it's not rambling. It's not 
just the me show. It's showing the person that you're listening to their questions and giving them appropriate signals non-verbally that you understood what they want to hear. It's a, it's a whole combination of those things that does the warmth there too. So another thing that people will, all of us probably have to do at some point in our life is either give a speech or a presentation. And I thought in the book, you guys did made a really interesting point that public speaking is a lot trickier now than say a hundred years ago. Why is that? What's changed? Well, you know, it's interesting because we live in the age of Ted and there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who have met this level of speaking that they need to do where they're putting on these 10, 15 minute talks and they've got them memorized. And nowadays we are really prioritizing conversation over oration. And what I mean by that is a TED talk is supposed to be intimate. And we're part of the intimacy is you're wearing a microphone so you can use your conversational voice. You're not orating so that the people in the back of the room can hear you. You're not projecting your voice in some way that people had to before amplification. And you're supposed to give people some of yourself as well as no stuff. And I think it's tricky because first off, the bar is high because of the TED effect, but it's also just that the time where you have to figure out how can you bring enough of yourself so people get that sense that you're showing them your true or authentic person, and how can you demonstrate that sense of competence or expertise that people want to take from you so they there was something for them to hear you know why why were they listening to you in the first place was it something interesting about your background do you know something and it's making sure you balance those things that's in some way fundamentally different than it used to be where it was more about speaker speaks audiences listen now there's a, a more conversational dynamic to it and and what was more formal speech now just sounds stiff and wooden so it has to have that conversational tone and yet you also have to hit that mark for competence so how do you display that intimacy and warmth when you're in front of a large audience? So you can have a more conversational tone, but are there other like nonverbal cues you can do? Absolutely. And you know, a good speech will take you on a journey and it'll do a bunch of these things. And sometimes there'll be a moment where you're really just kind of hitting the marks on what you know, but then sometimes there will be either a change of direction or a pause or a break and someone will tell a more personal story. Maybe their voice will come down a little bit and say, look, this is really hard. And suddenly you're listening and you're connecting to them as a person and then they bring you back up. And so it's thinking about hitting multiple notes in a talk. It's not all at one level the whole time. It's making sure that there are different beats in it where you're connecting with what people already know and then taking them into unfamiliar territory where they haven't been there before and giving them enough variety. It's kind of like a symphony where you've got to have enough different movements to it that it keeps people engaged the whole time, but also takes them into unfamiliar turf at some point. So what do we do with our hands? That's the question everyone wants to know. What do I do with my hands when I'm up there? Right. This is the one thing when we work with people in person that they remember more than anything because everybody's obsessed with this question. Now, look, let's just kind of acknowledge culturally that there are differences around gesture around the world. So let's put that on the table. Within the United States, at least, one way to think about this is a lot of times the gesture that's seen as strong, it almost is a cliche is the karate chop. It's the kind of straight down your hands, almost like a blade. It goes straight down and says, look, here's the thing. And it's very insistent. And if you're 
twice as strong. It's the double karate chop, the right hand and the left hand. And, you know, you can almost look like a Ginsu knife salesman on infomercial at two in the morning, you know, saying buy now with the hands like that. It's kind of a joke. And then the extreme that's so think of that as an extreme of strength on the other extreme of warmth. Think about if you're welcoming your relatives who have come great distances to see you and you open your arms to them at the airport. And so warmth is really opening ourselves to people. Strength is almost drawing that barrier. And if you think about the balance between these things, between this blade that's cutting the air in front of you and arms wide open, it's almost like, imagine you had a basketball in your hands and you had it somewhere between your hips and waist. Yeah, go ahead and do it right now. Imagine you have a basketball. I'm doing it right now, yeah. All right, okay. imaginary ball here. Yeah, the imaginary ball is actually a great tip if you're the kind of person who's not sure what your hands should be doing when you're gesturing. And depending on the point you're making, your ball can get bigger or smaller. So if you're making a little bit bigger point now, now make your ball a beach ball. Now, if you're ever going to do one of these TEDx talks or something like that, that biggest point in your life, <laughs> that big takeaway is that thing at the gym, that Pilates ball, that giant thing. And now you got the ball out. It's maybe beyond your shoulders on either side. Now you can shrink the ball back down. Now maybe in your left hand, there's just a baseball there for a second. So move that baseball out to the left side, maybe shift hands, put the baseball on the right hand side. Sometimes you can pass it almost like a basketball. And the ball is a helpful corrective if you're the kind of person who flops around a little bit with your hands, I don't mean to say, Hey, just do this ball thing all the time. That's, <laughs> that would be a, a misconstruing of what I'm saying here. But if you're a person who you've seen yourself on video and your hands tend to flail around and they're just doing things like the illegal motion sign that you see your referees doing football or something that is not consistent with what you're saying. The ball can be some a nice thing because it does a little bit of strength and a little bit of warmth. It's open, but it also has a little bit of control or poise to it. So let's talk about a, a crisis time. Let's say at work, something you're, you're a leader and there's something's happened, right? And it's all hands on deck. I imagine you're, you're again, you're wanting to display strength to show that, hey, we, we got, we've got a plan, but you're also wanting to display warmth because people are probably feeling anxious or whatever. So what does that look like? You know, it's so specifically context-driven that it's hard to generalize. Sometimes you, you have to be the person that says, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and that can be the perfect answer. And that's the thing that sets people's minds at ease in that setting. And depending on the, you know, in another instance, it might be the person that says, look, this is really tough. And they do the warmth move first. And then they say, because this is so urgent, we got to go do this. <laughs> and you know, it can be a quick pivot there depending on the setting. Uh, so it's hard to know what the setting is, who the, who the protagonists in, you know, what the specifics of the challenge are. But if there's a question of people needing a, a little bit of a morale boost, maybe that's where the warmth moment comes. If it's really about which way do we get out of the jungle here and being the person who says, let's go that way. <laughs> that can be the place where you say, okay, we need just the strength, the, the competence answer now. And somebody who sounds like they know which way to go. So yeah, again, you have to balance strength and warmth. So right. Sometimes show strength, sometimes you got to be show the warmth. Well, Matt, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, you know, the book is out there on Amazon and all those places. And, you know, we have a bunch of resources on the KNP Communications website about this. And I've written a few things on Medium over the years that people can find as well if they just search on my name. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you about this. It's been fun seeing this stuff work out in the wild for several years at this point, And it's fun to talk through it with you. Well, Matt Kohat, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
My guest today is Matthew Kohut. He is the co-author of the book, Compelling People. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash compelling people. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years on things like charisma and social skills, stuff we talked about in the podcast today. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, use code MANLINESS to sign up for a free month trial of Stitcher Premium. Once you sign up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying the new episodes of Art of Manliness podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. Shoot them a text or something. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.